Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society, and this podcast is definitively part of that effort. I'm very excited and honored to have Alan Feld from Vintage Investment Partners on the uh, podcast today. Vintage is based in Israel, and regardless of how you feel about the conflict in the region, we can all agree it's a human tragedy. The conversation today isn't about who's right and who's wrong. The conversation is about the impact of this conflict on an otherwise thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem and what this will do after that. Uh, Alan shares a lot of really interesting perspective on those topics around the uh, ecosystem in Israel, the impact of a wartime environment, but he also sheds a lot of light and frankly wisdom about team dynamics, humility, and character. I really, really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. Alan, thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Let's start off at the top. Uh, would you mind giving an introduction of Vintage? Sure. Uh, so we managed a, about $4 billion. Um, $2 billion is roughly is uh, a little bit over $2 billion is funds of funds. We raised our seventh fund of funds, $630 million last October. Uh, about a billion dollars roughly is secondary funds. We raised our uh, fifth secondary fund uh, two years ago, uh, and it's roughly $312 million. And uh, we also have, um, and our third area of activity is direct investing, B rounds and above, together with the managers which we're investors in. Uh, and in growth rounds, and uh, we have about a billion dollars there, raised uh, our uh, third fund uh, a few years ago and, and investing out of that. And in addition to that, we also have this free service where large corporates tell us what their technology pain points are, and we help uh, our underlying portfolio companies in the funds in which we've invested, help them meet uh, those large corporates, potential customers, we don't take a fee for it. It's a free service, just the way we try to add value to the ecosystem, to the uh, funds which we've invested in, to companies um, that they've invested in. And you, your firm has been around for about 20 years? 20 years. Right? This year was yeah, our 20th and, anniversary. And your, congratulations. And you're based right. in Israel. Yep. Um, are you typically managing uh, Israeli capital? Where, where, capital sources, are they generally uh, U.S.? Primarily North America, Europe, and somewhat uh, Israel, um, but it's, it. it's 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 a global capital raise. Got it. So it's for folks, pe funds that are capital that is interested in getting access and exposure to Israel chases to you. Uh, no, actually, no. Actually, the majority of vast majority of our investing um, on the fund the fund side is actually in in uh, North America and um, and Europe. Um, the Israeli investment portion is actually. Uh, on the fund to fund side, it's about 15% of what we do, one five percent of what we do. Um, uh, so actually, uh, it's, you know, because we've been um, fortunate to work with a lot of great uh, VCs globally. Um, and uh, and so uh, we built very good relationships with a lot of great VCs. Um, also, we've uh, been identifying uh, really interesting managers uh, early. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we're big believers in seed investing. So, uh, you know, we've been investing in smaller seed funds for over 15 years. And, and, uh, and so, you know, some of those managers have grown to be significant funds, you know, it's large funds over time and we've continued with them. 
Um, but, uh, but on the, you know, certainly on the fund of fund side, the majority, the vast majority of our money is actually invested in, in North America and Western Europe. There's a lot of GPs that listen to this pod. Um, if someone was to say, Hey, why are you guys the right partners in LP for a seed fund? If that's the target in particular, what's the kind of, you know, short pitch so they can hear it. We, um, we have one of the highest re-up rates in the, that I know of. So, you know, all we do is, is venture investing. So we're not going to wake up tomorrow morning and say, Hey, we don't like technology. Let's invest in, you know, funds that invest in trees, right? Like this is what we do. This is all we do. This is what we're passionate about. This is what we love. That's it, right? That's the, the asset we offer to our investor base. Um, so, you know, we're long-term players because this is all we do. You know, uh, we folk, we've got a fair bit of data that we try to be helpful to the funds with about best practices, what works, what doesn't work. Um, and so we get a lot of phone calls from our GPs, uh, and we present ideas to them around, uh, around, uh, you know, what, what's the right strategy when it comes to say reserve management or, uh, you know, how you should build the portfolio, et cetera. Another thing, of course, um, you know, that we do is, we get approached a lot by uh, companies because they know we're a fund of funds. They also know that we are deep in, in uh, into various kinds of technologies and they ask us which um, funds should they go to. And we've, uh, you know, we're a source of deal flow for a lot of the funds as well. And then finally, um, we're helpful to the funds companies, right? We've just give you a sense of that value plus I mentioned before. Um, we have generated over $200 million in revenue for startups through introductions we've made, 280, over 280 purchase orders, and we haven't taken a dime from any. So that's a hell of a stat. Uh, it's differentiating. Like, so what we're trying to do is we're, we're saying, okay, just like it, you know, I would say you know, almost what Andreessen is trying to do for their companies, we're trying to do for our GPs and try to be as helpful as we possibly can. So we're trying to make our money quite frankly, greener than the next. Alan, before we started recording, mm -hmm. you and I were kind of hitting it off talking about firm culture. Mm -hmm. And I think you were dropping some wisdom that everyone would benefit from. So I'm going to take you back to that. Uh, how do you think about culture in vintage uh, internally within the team? And is it important it, to you? Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. I, Every time we, all of us look at companies for investment, and I've been, you know, in this, in the investment world for 35 years, um, you know, you're always looking at the people, right? You're always looking, what's the dynamic? What's the founder like? What's the dynamic between the founders? You know, we're all looking at, at the culture of the organization we're investing in. We don't invest enough time in looking at the culture of our own organizations. How do we relate to our partners? How do we relate to all the people in our team. And I think one of the important things that I learned is, you know, there's a number of funds that I um, have seen that, you know, match themselves as an aggregate of a bunch of individual GPs. What we found, at least in our case, is there is a real case for one plus one equals three. Um, I think we make better investment decisions when we can be honest and open with one another. I think we make better follow on investment decisions. And so what we've attempted to do is build a culture where we can speak extremely openly, uh, very candidly, but, it, but everybody knows it's coming from the right place. 
So I've been looking when I was building Vintage, it was extremely important for me that I uh, find people whose egos are, you know, well-contained uh, and are self-reflective. So, you know, as I mentioned to you before, one of the things we do when we go off-site, we go off-site three times a year, um, I always start with the crappy investments I made. And, you know, fortunately, there's, fortunately, there's, a, or unfortunately, there's a lot of those. And that allows, you know, and then everybody starts piping in with what they, you know, haven't, uh, you know, what they've invested in that wasn't working. And then we have, you know, we can look at uh, what did we do right? And what did we do wrong as a firm? And I think the importance of, first of all, taking individual responsibility in what you've done, but also at the same time, on the other side of it, giving collective praise for the decision making and making those, you know, working together on deals and, and feeling that you're part of a team, I think is also important. You know, the other thing that I, I think on the firm building side, um, as I mentioned to you, I'm just turned 62 a, a couple of weeks ago. And, um, you know, I, um, as a founder of it, as the founder of Vintage, it's really important both to our LPs, to the GPs and to, to the people who work at Vintage that, you know, there be continuation. And I've, uh, spoken to a lot of people about how you, deal with issues like succession, how you build the firm so that, you know, that it survives you. And I've spent a, a lot of, I actually wrote a blog about this seven years ago saying when I was 55, this is what I'm planning on doing. And that's exactly what I've been doing. So, um, you know, and, and so having that um, uh, sense of, hey, I'm going to make myself irrelevant. Uh, and so the firm can, can become, you know, can survive you. Is, is also, I think, part of it. And it comes from the same thing. You've got to be able to learn how to per, put your ego in, in, in the right places. It's not easy, oh, but man. you have no choice. <clears throat> uh, I want to just uh, yes and and share with you. Uh, we're, we're, we're cut from similar fabric, it seems. Uh, I'm a member of YPO. Uh, we do a lot of EQ like programs in that where you're trying to really get vulnerable in a quick way, which is very hard for people. Uh, I don't know if it's as common in other cultures, but for Americans, I think generally it's very challenging to kind of break through the barriers. Um, there's an exercise called a lifeline uh, where an individual will get 15 minutes uninterrupted to tell their personal life story, the best thing and the worst thing in five-year increments. So that hmm. usually encompasses all the trauma, like the literal worst things, things that people do not discuss. Uh, at our retreats, as a in our core team, our partnership, we do lifelines, um, and usually it results. Uh, Great. Usually it results in actually some of the people crying because yeah. they're talking about parents passing away, cancer, uh, all sorts of traumatic abuses, and um, you know I think you can't just do, show up one day and say, "Hey, we're going to have a culture where people share." You have to have a baseline of trust, but if you can get to that that vulnerability really builds connection. And then when you get to things like making a bad business decision, who cares, right? Like, did you, did you do your best? You know, like there's a baseline. You know, it's interesting you mention this because um, a few years back, I, I, this past year was, uh, you know, my father had passed away when I was 11. And um, uh, this past year um, was 50 years since he passed away. And I, you know, I always said to myself, wait a minute, that if, must have affected who I am as a human being. And I decided to do some research a year ago. 
that um, I was going to, that I decided to interview uh, venture, uh, sorry, venture backed CEOs who had been very, very successful uh, to ask about their lives before they were 18. <laughs> we, mm-hmm. we tend to, you know, we, in a lot of cases when we um, meet entrepreneurs, all right, where did you go to school? Tell us about your work history. I think what really uh, has massive impact on an entrepreneur is actually how did they grow up? What was the dynamic? So I did this survey and I'm in the process of completing it, but you know, did you have a traumatic experience? How did you deal with it as a child? Um, did you grow up rich? Did you grow up middle class? Did you grow up poor? Did, um, what, ch- what number of child were you? Uh, mm-hmm. you know, birth order has a big in- influence. Um, did you play competitive sports? Was it team sports? Was it individual sports? Uh, did you have, you know, did you work as a kid? Um, uh, you know, all sorts of questions. I had a list of about 15 or 20 questions and it was, it was fascinating. Yet I've, you know, I've got to do the control group of the guys who didn't succeed, but of the ones who did succeed, um, you know, over 80% of them had a traumatic experience in their childhood that was incredibly um, important in, in defining who they are as human beings. You know, and I, and I, and the message that I got from all this, and I shared it with my partners afterward was, I don't think we're doing the right thing by only talking to people like life doesn't begin at Um, and, and how that, who that person is and what molded them is probably even more important than what school they went to and more important even sometimes than their work experience. Cause look, it's not easy to be an entrepreneur. It's hard to be. And, you know, in, in my 35 years of investing, I don't remember a seed company that I ever met that ex- that was exactly the strategy that they ended up having, you know, executing on. In other words, there was constant pivot. There was constant things that were thrown at them along the way. And it's interesting to see, do they have the, does he or she have the ability to take all these things that are thrown along you, thrown at you along the way and adjust accordingly? And seeing what they did before they're 18, you, you learn a lot um, about that issue. I'm pretty sure I interview at least 500 people a year for hiring for roles that we're hiring for. And uh, I use the same interview questions and I have been for the past decade. And I try to keep them very secret because I don't want to give anyone a cheat sheet. Uh, but again, another similarity. One of the things I actually ask people is, um, who were they in high school? If I bumped to one of their friends in high school and I was like, who the hell, you know, who the hell is Steve or Sally? Great. How would they describe you? Um, it's fast. It's far more fascinating. Oh, right? yeah. And you can, and you can start to pattern match too. Right. I don't know if you found this, but I found that there was a lot of people, uh, when I first started in business, um, it was like, an, it was like, um, learning how to walk again. I kind of set aside all my predispositions and assumptions and cultural expectations mm-hmm. and was stumbling through it. And then the light bulb went off and I realized that the same social cues I could use in high school and college applied in talent yeah. decisions on teams. Uh, and so when you get childhood stories, it helps you find a narrative to figure out, you know, this person faced adversity and succeeded through it. You know, the same kind of narratives we were inspired by socially. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's so crucial. And I don't think people put enough emphasis on, it. um, you know, at the end of the day, you, 
it's almost a marriage when you invest in a, in an entrepreneur. You're going to be with that person for for at least you know chances are for at least a decade, right? And it's amazing to what extent we don't understand who they are as human beings. Um, you know, we, we we focus too much. Uh, you know, I'm not minimizing the importance of product, and I'm not minimizing the importance of market, but I don't think we focus nearly enough as investors on who that person is. I look at, you know, again, I mentioned I've done a lot of lousy investments in my career, but if I was to pinpoint where I made my mistakes, it was because I got the, the people wrong. Hmm. And I didn't understand understand them and their ability to uh, to adjust and to listen to, you know, I, there's no question. Um, and I And I think we don't, as an industry, we don't put enough emphasis on it. By the way, as I mentioned, we got to also look in the mirror and apply it to our own firms, right? You know, are we uh, recruiting the right people? Are we recruiting people who can also adjust? I mean, every venture fund is also going through dramatic shifts and ups and downs in marketplaces and, you know, the market conditions, et cetera. So um, we also have to be recruiting people and partners who can adjust and, and, and be, you know, true, you know, true partners, even in difficult times. Alan, we're going to talk today, obviously, about uh, the conflict between Israel and Hamas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't have thought of a, better, a more beautiful way to kind of set up a little bit of getting to know you before we get into something so delicate mm-hmm. than to hear the way you think about empathy and kind of the EQ just in micro interactions in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I think a lot of people don't know about Israel is it's actually a fairly diverse society. It's not mm-hmm. entirely Jewish people. It's right. 10 to 20% Arab, if I believe that's correct. Yeah, it's 20%. Yeah. 20%, right. Pretty significant chunk of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, before we kind of move into the broader uh, paradigm that's happening with the conflict and how it's affecting the startup community out in Israel. Um, can you give us a little bit of a microcosm? You know, yeah, sure. with a with, with a um, population that's twenty percent Arab, eighty yeah. percent. I'm assuming that most of the rest is just. I know there's some mm-hmm. Christians there as well. Um, what does that What does that translate to on your team at Vintage? So, well, one of the things that um, that I first of all, I'm a big believer in diversity. Period. Right. I'm not diversity where you're, you know, you're you're um, trying to put a check mark on having a person from a certain background, but I. Equality of opportunity. Um, and in every time we're recruiting for somebody, we're always trying to um, make sure that we're taking candidates and looking at candidates from multiple areas. So one of the things I'm proud about Vintage is we have a number of people on our team who come from the Palestinian-Israeli community. Um, and, and I did that on, you know, I, I, thought, I thought that was extremely important, important rather. And I even helped create an, a recruitment firm uh, on a philanthropic basis that would help try and bring people from the Palestinian Israeli community into the high-tech industry. I also started a nonprofit called Power and Diversity Israel for that purpose. And, and I'll tell you why. First of all, I think our firm is better. I think firms are better that you have more diverse populations, but frankly, I have another agenda, which is I would rather uh, people look at this person is my friend from work and not my enemy. And I think one of the, you know, amazing opportunities that we could, uh, we could see here, um, is if we could do much more effort around integrating people from, um, the, uh, 
Israeli Arab, Palestinian Israeli community into the high tech industry um, as a way to break down some of those barriers. And I've been spending the last 10 years, actually, I mean, probably 25 years, I should say, you know, working on it. I think it's extremely important. One of the, one of the most uh, impressive people I've ever met in my life is a man called the L. Walton. Um, you should, you know, I would recommend you interview him at some point. Eyal was the founder of a company called Mellanox, which was bought by um, NVIDIA and, you know, built it into a hugely successful business, $7 billion in revenue. Eyal consciously built R&D centers in Gaza, Ramallah, Hebron, and Nablus. And it was because he wanted to say, I want to give people an opportunity and I believe that if we can strengthen that business, you know, strengthen economically those communities, um, you know, it will, it will help through, it will help break down some of these barriers. Well, unfortunately, Al's daughter was killed on October 7th. She was at the peace party and she was, she and her a fiance or future husband were, were uh, murdered on that day. And a, and a, probably the one that was moving experiences, you know, I've, I can remember was being at that funeral and Eyal standing over the grave of his daughter and his future son-in-law saying, we have to get rid of Hamas. Hamas is, you know, a huge obstacle to peace. But when Hamas is gone, I want to go back down to Gaza to help rebuild. You know, and I, and I, I think about that, right? His daughter's just been, you know, this is two days after she, she was slaughtered, right? There's a, I think a lot of us in the high tech community in particular feel very strongly that we have to find a way to live together in this region. And we believe that technology, that investment, that partnership is a really great way to do it. We've done it internally in vintage, but I, you know, I believe that, uh, it's something we have to do at a, at a, at a country level, right? With the Palestinian Israeli community. Much more intensely, um, and second, um, you know, to um, you know, to do it regionally. One other project that we that vintage um, together with uh, a well-known uh, family from the Arab community, we started a uh, an incubator um, to train uh, Palestinian-Israeli entrepreneurs to be entrepreneurs um, to help get them going. And I, you know, I think. That economic empowerment, that bringing people together is, is what the future of, what should be the future of this region. I don't have a full sense of it from the outside. I, I encounter a lot of Israeli entrepreneurs. Have the, has the Palestinian, Israel, Arab, Israeli community broken in to the tech cycle? Yeah, or starting is it- to it. So 22%, uh, over 22% of the, um, which is a much bigger percentage of, of, of population. Um, of the uh, students in engineering at Technion, which is Israel's leading um, technical, you know, technology university, come from the Arab-Israeli community, right? So um, on the contrary, you know, I think what's happening is we're seeing more and more people um, from that community getting into the high-tech industry. Um, you know, you see, it, you see them at Apple, you see them at Intel, you see, et cetera. And, and again, you, see, you know, we made sure that that they've got opportunities at all of our companies, right? Because we think that's fundamental. Um, so I think there's a big change. And I think one of the nice things, again, that has happened in the last 10 years and during a difficult period 
is is the beginning of this integration. Alan, this is a loaded moment in time for everybody on all sides of this conflict. Are people not even involved? It's very loaded. Um, just to get a con some context as we kind of go a little deeper, mm -hmm. uh, has your family or any close friends been directly affected? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I've unfortunately, um, I, uh, um, friend of a uh, person who I'm very, very close with, uh, two of his sons were killed at, on October 7th. Um, I have another friend whose son was killed on October 7th. I have other friends whose kids have been killed since. Um, it's uh, not a simple time. It's a hard time. Um, and on a personal basis. Um, look, you know, at the end of the day, as I say, we've got to find a way to live. Together. Um, and I believe that, you know, if we can succeed in, um, it, you know, Hamas out, but also at the same time, some of the very extreme people that we've got and put them to the side and, and start working together on, on a genuine solution. I think there's, there's room. I think, you know, the, the, it's not a simple thing. I don't think people understand how complicated, uh, the, A, this region is and the, the whole conflict is. But I, you know, I'm hopeful that, um, that this very difficult, especially this very difficult couple of months, um, we'll sort of knock a bunch of heads together and say, okay, folks, let's try and figure out a way to make this work. And we're all hoping. Um, we, we get very different media in the U.S. Uh, than the Israelis are consuming. I consume a little of both uh, in an effort to understand this conflict. Mm -hmm. um, is there an Israeli view right now on how long the conflict's going to go on? Yeah, no one really knows. I mean, at the end of the day, um, Look, I think it's it's fundamental that and it's absolutely critical that Hamas be removed from power and the and the uh, hostages be released. I mean, that, there's nothing more. You know, that is the fundamental issue. Um, you know, if if Hamas was gone tomorrow and and the the hostages were released, this conflict would be over, right? I mean, it wouldn't have happened in the first place, right? So, you know, I I genuinely believe that that's the first stage, and I think going once that happens, and I, I wish it would happen um, somehow through negotiations that Hamas leaves the region and gets out of the, this whole thing, um, you know, we have to think about how we rebuild the Palestinian economy. Um, a lot of people don't realize also that, you know, southern Israel has been decimated by this. Um, unfortunately, in Lebanon, uh, you know, Hezbollah has taken advantage of what's been going on and has been firing on northern Israel. And there are 250,000 people displaced in the northern part of the country. And so, um, you know, we have to get the conflict over, get people back and start rebuilding. And I think it's rebuilding here also because the south of Israel was literally, you know, the, um, the mosque people really destroyed, you know, a good chunk of the border communities. Um, and we have to, also start rebuilding a, a gas um, and, and in, a, in a positive. So I'm hopeful that, you know, we can figure out partners on both sides. And, we could, and, and both sides have a lot of work to do to make sure we get the right people together to get to get to the next stage. So just shifting this to kind of impact on the startup community for a bit, sure. because very important part of the Israeli economy is the tech sector. Yeah. Um, I'm reading a book about the water industry there as well right now, but yeah. let's focus on tech. Um, 
What percentage? I mean, it's a unique country in that, you know, we don't have a mandatory conscription in the U.S. where you're mm -hmm. 18, you're in the military. Mm -hmm. that, that exists for male and female in Israel, mm -hmm. not for everybody, but for most. Mm -hmm. um, what percentage of folks in the economy right now are on military duty? Right. Is it? I, I don't know the exact percentage, but I can tell you that um, a lot of people are serving in reserve duties in, in, in some capacity, um, whether it's, you know, protecting in the border up north or, you know, uh, filling various roles um, or medical roles or whatever. Um, you know, obviously, uh, reserve duty in the south. Um, but, I, you know, I, um, you know, there's no question it has an impact. But one of the things I think is amazing is this country is very resilient. And, and I think what people have done is they're doing a lot more with actually a lot less. So even though you have people, we have people who, you know, have been called up. Um, we're still, you know, so you work hard, uh, just to get stuff done, um, and make sure everything is completed and everything's, you know, working and everything's effective, et cetera. Um, you know, by the way, just, uh, you know, the other thing I, I don't, a lot of people don't realize that, um, of the people who were killed on October 7th, and, and it, you know, there's this perception again, it's, you know, Israeli Jews were, right, 46% of those people were Muslim, were Israeli Muslim. And, um, some of the people who are hostages are also Israeli Muslims. So this is not, you know, only a quote Jew, you know, Jew versus Muslim. This is, um, something that we as Jews and Muslims within Israel are experiencing. Similarly, you know, there's a number of people from the Bedouin community, which is a Muslim community, and the Druze community, which is not a Jewish community, who are serving in the army, in the Israeli army, also defending the country, right? So they too are, have been called up as part of the service. So it's not, you know, it, it's not just quote, you know, some of people have characterized this as a battle of religions. It's, it's not. It's a it's a bunch of people living in this country trying to defend it, defend it. So, um, framing the uh, startup operations for a second. So, yeah. it's, you guys are on night shift type situation. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, you're working. Eighty percent of people are at the office. Everyone's kind of yeah, their sleeves and doubling hard. down. Everybody's resilient. I mean, look. The Has it community. felt like the economy's kind of slowed down a little bit, or trains no, are still running good. on time? Deals are and still happening. Um, deals are still happening. By the way, just as an aside, I I can yeah. tell you this past year, if you look at the M and A activity this year, as a the the level of M and A activity in relative to the previous year is actually uh, on a on a relative basis, say to the decline we've seen in M and A in the UK. Sorry, mm -hmm. in the US. And the decline we've seen in M and A in, in Europe, um, it the decline in M and A here is not anywhere close. In other words, it's it's actually companies are being bought. Um, there have been several very large deals. Uh, you know, I in two thousand and six um, when uh, we had this uh, war with uh, Lebanon um, after two soldiers were were kidnapped then. Um, out from the Israeli border, um, you know, there was literally a war and Warren Buffett bought Iskar, which was 10 kilometers away from the border. You know, I, this is a credibly resilient country. So, you know, foreign investors continue to invest. Um, uh, companies continue to be bought. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you can. Okay. Uh, um, you know, companies continue to be bought. 
Right. Uh, you know, and so it's it's um, it's not a um, you know things have have hardly come to a stop. Now, having it's, said all that, you still it's so people. bizarre to hear that it, when you're seeing it, the pictures it, on the outside. No, that correct. The companies, no, countries still function. I, I don't want to. I I also don't yeah. want to, you know, paint a picture that doesn't exist. Right. I mean, it's difficult. Right. I mean, you know, people. Everybody here is, and this is a small country, right? People have lost people. They've got people, you know, in, in harm's way. You still do get rockets. We're still getting rockets today uh, being fired. Um, but this is an incredibly resilient uh, population that says we're not giving up. We're not, you know, and frankly, we have nowhere to go. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're here to make it work. We want to work, find a way to work with our neighbors and work with our um, fellow citizens and make this what it should be, which is, you know, could be an example to, to of how people work together and live together rather than the conflict we're in now. So I think the Monday after October 7 was the 9th. Yeah. Obviously, the world changed. Yeah. What, what's, the, what's the message you were disseminating or folks were disseminating out to CEOs? So someone's running a startup after a crisis. What's the lesson learned or how do you operate in the expected austerity that comes after that? I think, you know, it goes back to the, what we started off with with the beginning of the conversation, right? We talked about um, how some of the best entrepreneurs um, are people who have had uh, challenges uh, when they were young. Um, we're, a, a, you know, they call us the startup nation, right? So, uh, same thing. We have to pivot. We have to figure out, despite everything that's going on, how do we make life go on? Uh, how do we uh, make life go on for our families? How do we make our, our economy continue to be uh, successful? What do we do to make, uh, you know, um, frankly, the world a better place? Uh, I don't think as, as hard as October 7th was, and it was a traumatic day, it was a huge watershed moment in this country. Um, it is really unbelievable to see how, um, you know, people went back to work right away, how um, despite everything, people are, are doing whatever they can to, to make you know, themselves and the country successful. Uh, and, you know, that, but again, look, this is not the first time we've had conflict in this region, right? Um, we've seen it for, you know, since the country was formed, right? So, uh, for, you know, I would say, unfortunately, we're used to it. Um, but yeah, you see the resilience of, of, of the population. And also you see the hope. I mean, people are, are hopeful that we can figure out a way to make this work. People don't give up. I mean, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, right, you're, it's a pretty crazy thing to do, right, to be an entrepreneur. And if you ever give up hope, you're going to shut your business down. Well, um, and, and, you, and you don't want to give up that hope. You want to keep, you know, fighting to make sure that your, your business survives. Well, that's what we are as a country. Uh, that's, I think, one of the reasons they call it Startup Nation, because, you know, we have to constantly reinvent ourselves to, to ensure that this place uh, survives. This uh, conflict has, cha has opened up a little bit of Pandora's box and even changed um, lots of perspectives about the region, right? Anti-Semitism is a popular word in the media mm -hmm. right now in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, 
there's people with very strong opinions, even if it's not related to anti-Semitism, just about mm -hmm. policies and how the conflict's being executed on both mm -hmm. sides. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very complicated. H have you noticed any change in the, the broader business community's interaction with Israel? Have the LP t tone changed? Has the, um, has the customer set signaled any differences because of the conflict that you've noticed? We have not. Um, I mean, I've not seen anything yet material. I mean, obviously, uh, people's willing, you know, not everybody's flying over here uh, in the middle of, a, you know, the, the conflict. I mean, you know, otherwise people are visiting here, you know, frequently. Um, but, again, you know, but so you go to them, right? I mean, I think that the vast majority, at least the vast majority of people we've been speaking to have been, uh, you know, shared my, at least my perspective on things, which is, We've got to figure out a way that, that everybody lives together. But I think under, people understand that, you know, Hamas is a, at least the people I speak to and who understand the conflict, who have been here before, have, you know, under, you know, talked to Israelis um, uh, and, you know, not form their views only by what they see on TikTok or on X, right? But actually come here, talk to Israelis, understand the conflict. And that same matter, talk to Palestinians. Uh, packed to Palestinians, Israel, Palestinian Israelis, right? Um, I think, you know, they realize that this is a, com this is a complicated uh, conflict that has, that, you know, should be resolved. And there's some really good people trying to resolve. We've all got people are getting in the way of that resolution, including people on our side. But, um, but I think that, you know, um, at least what I've seen in the tech community, right, uh, is that, you know, the people I talk to all want to try and find a, you know, way to make it, to get to that next stage. And I think that message has gotten across to, to both LPs, investors, to, to uh, business people globally. Um, this, this pod gets picked up in a lot of different geographies, but it's obviously concentrated in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Any key message you kind of wish Americans were hearing? that maybe is getting lost in translation? Yeah. Um, there's a huge amount of disinformation that's going on about who everybody is in this conflict. Um, there's a huge amount of disinformation about Hamas as an organization and what it's done, not just to Israelis, but to Palestinians. Um, and, I, and I wish that um, people would share with us in, in Let's get Hamas out and let's do it all we can to make sure we get to the next stage of rebuilding um, Palestinian, the Palestinian territories and figure out a way we can get this thing to peace and put, do what we can to build leadership on both sides that are going to get us. There. So don't give up on us. Um, not everything in life is black and white. It's not this guy or this guy or right you know there's there's a lot of gray in this whole issue and as i've said even here right um uh, i don't look at this as only you know only these guys are bad or only these guys are good there's a lot of stuff we got to fix and i see that even in our own organization right i mean um you know people you know the palestinians and israelis are working in vintage you know they may have different views about different things but we all know that the end of the day, we'll figure, you know, we figure out a way to work together. Then why can't we? That should also, you know, happen in a national level.
So uh, maybe it will be the micro relationships that may expand. Um, but, you know, I, I think the message is, uh, you know, let's, let's get the extremes out and let's do what we can to make sure that, uh, that um, you know, Israel is safe, Palestinians get the right solution for them, and we move forward. Thank you very much for being on, Alan. Thank you. It was an honor. Um, big thanks to Alan for coming on and chatting. Um, every time we chat, I feel like I learned something. I thought that was a, a real wonderful conversation in a lot of dimensions. Uh, hopefully it was helpful to the entrepreneurs and VCs listening. A lot of nuance and perspective in there about just generally leadership and investing. With that, we'll catch you next week. <laughs>